Today we are looking, as I said, excuse me, at 1 Chronicles chapter 21. So hopefully you've turned there. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we are following, obviously, chapter 20. And in chapter 20, we, and our last study together, we spent some time considering David's grievous sin of uh, adultery and deception and murder that he committed with Bathsheba and committed against uh, her, her husband, this fellow by the name of Uriah. And honestly, as the message was sort of confu- uh, c- concluding last week, I felt it was a very sobering message. You know, this wasn't one of those messages that you walk out and you're like, yeah, this is great, you know. But it was one of those like, hey man, wake up. Because any one of us could fall at any time. It was very sobering. It was very challenging even to myself to sort of bring it. And I think hopefully it had the effect in our lives as to sort of really just kind of shake us a little bit so that we think about all of our actions, all of our decision making, uh, everywhere we're going, everything we're doing, uh, and, and how seriously we approach sin because if a guy like David this great man of God could be tripped up any one of us can and so we need to be on our guard and we need to be aware now this morning we are going to consider a second area uh, a major sin that David commits and that is given to us in the scripture and you might read it chapter 20 David and Bathsheba chapter 21 this next thing that he did what's going on with this guy this guy is a mess you know week after week he's doing these things. Well, one of the things that you, you don't really get the context from the context here is you might think that, man, David's a mess. Week after week after week, he's doing these things. The reality is between chapter 20 and chapter 21 is about 20 years of David's life. It just goes from one event to the next. If you read first, or excuse me, second Samuel, which is more of a biographical look at David, you will see that because David and Bathsheba is chapter 11 this chapter we're going to be looking at is chapter 24. And there's 20 years worth of events that are in between those two uh, events here. So David is not on some sort of bad streak of events here. He's not having a bad month or year. This is spread out over his lifetime here. And we saw last week David and Bathsheba. This week, David's sin is the numbering of the nation of Israel. He took a census of the people. Now you might hear that and you might think, what? Adultery, deception, murder, numbering people? That doesn't seem to make any sense. How could, what could be so wrong with numbering people? And certainly, how do the two compare? As a matter of fact, the Scripture says that this sin was far more serious than the sin with Bathsheba and the murdering of Uriah. You're like, what? How could that possibly be, taking a census? Well, let's read the passage. We'll spend some time. We'll talk about it. It starts in verse 1. We're only going to read the first seven verses right now. It says, And then Satan stood against Israel... And he incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my lord the king, all of them my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed, and he went throughout all of Israel, and he came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. And in all Israel there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And in Judah there were 470,000 who drew the sword. But But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's commandment was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing, 
and he struck Israel. Now, as I said, we don't have uh, all the information of David's life in the book of 1 Chronicles. The purpose of the book of 1 Chronicles, as I've been saying a lot now, but I'm just trying to nail it down so you remember, um, is it's the nation has returned from captivity. The year is roughly, you know, 400 B.C., somewhere in that ballpark. And now they're returning to a land that they've been out of that land for about 100 years. And the author, they think it's a guy by the name of Ezra, he sets out to put in place all the things that are going on. Okay, who's going to be the religious leader? Who's going to be the political leaders? Where are people going to establish and set themselves up? Uh, how do the sacrificial systems work? All these things. He's reminding these people. He's putting those things in place. That's the purpose of this book. The purpose of the book is not to tell us every single thing that occurred in the life of the main character, who was David. If you really want to know everything that occurred in the life of the main character, then you should read 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel is a biographical look at King David. Some of the book, most of it was written by Samuel, but some of the book was written by David himself. And it's there that we learn that David sinned with Bathsheba. We don't have that information in 1 Chronicles because that doesn't suit the purpose of the author. The purpose of the author is not to air David's dirty laundry. And I'm glad. If David wants to write about it in 2 Samuel, let David write about it. But Ezra's not going to write about it necessarily. That does nothing to accomplish his purpose of establishing who the rightful ruler is and his offspring, David and his offspring. Now, but he does write about David's sin in chapter 21. So here I tell you, he's not going to write about David's sin, but then he does write about David's sin. Greg, you don't make any sense. I understand. Now, part of the reason we have to then ask ourselves, why then write about this sin? And I think there's a very good reason for why he writes about this sin, because it is through this sin, this initial action, and the consequences that came from it, and the response of God to those consequences, and then the response of David to God, uh, and how he responded to that original sin there, it's that whole process that brings us to a very important uh, result. And that very important result is what the author of uh, the book is trying to set out to do. I need to show you how the temple got in Jerusalem. And the only way I can do that is explain to you this event that occurred. And so he'll take us through this whole process and bring us eventually, look at verse 1 of chapter 22, here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. That's the temple. So we've got to get there. And to get there, you've got to know the background. And to know the background, you've got to know David's sin. And that's why, in this particular case, it is being shared here. Now, verse 1, look at it, let's go back. It says, verse 1, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Now, Satan is an actual being. There are some that will tell you that there's really no such thing as a devil, but that the devil is just sort of mankind's personification of evil. That's not really a, a being or a person of sorts. But the Scripture teaches something different. You can believe that if you want to believe it, but just know the Scripture teaches something different. The Scripture teaches that there is a being called the devil, called Satan, whose mission in life, if you will, is to trip up Christians or to trip people up in such a way to prevent them from coming to a relationship with God. We see an example of this in the book of Job. Here's Job, a man of faith. And Satan, it tells us, appears before uh, God in heaven there. And there he begins to accuse Job to God. Yet Job, yeah, he's this great guy. Yeah, he's this worshiper. Yeah, he's very righteous and all this sort of stuff. But you know and I know, Satan says to God, 
that if you took, started taking away the blessings from this guy's life, you know that he would turn around and curse you. You know that the only reason he serves you is because you've given him a great job and a nice family and a good place to live. Take those things away and he will curse you to your face. And God responds to uh, Job and he says, All right, you, or excuse me, to Satan, he says, you can do that. Just don't take his life. And one by one, his buildings start falling down and his, some of his children start dying and diseases start spreading on his life and his wife is nagging him and all the horrors and evils uh, that are taking place there. Uh, and they're coming against poor Job. Satan there is accusing. We see the example of it. In 1 Peter 5.8, I quoted last week, it says, your adversary, the devil, roar, or prowls around like a roaring lion. Your adversary, you have an enemy to your faith. And he comes here in 1 Chronicles 21. He comes uh, before God and he is seeking to incite David to commit sin. The book of Revelation says, in addition to the devil being our adversary, it says that he is the accuser of the brethren. And so he'll seek to trip you up. Now, he hates you. And he hates uh, David and he hates the nation of Israel. And so he sets his sight on bringing Israel down by setting his sights on the leader of Israel. If you are a leader in the faith in particular, you lead a family, you're a husband, you're a wife, you lead a youth ministry, you're an elder, you're a pastor, you're a worship leader, you teach Sunday school. If you're a leader in people's lives, you need to know this, that there is a target, one of those little targets that come from a gun, that is on you. That Satan knows that he can be more effective rather than tripping up some little guy here or a little person there, if he can take the leader, he's going to take a whole bunch of other people with them as well. And Satan now, trying to hurt the nation of Israel, comes against its king. And it says that he incites the king to number the people. Now you might look at that and you say, well, even if he did, what's wrong with numbering the people? You know, the United States of America, in our Constitution, uh, once I, we had a snow day, three days I was off from school, and I was back before we had television at our house, not before televisions, just <laughs> at our particular house. And so there was nothing to do. So I decided I would outline the U.S. Constitution um, just for fun. And it was great fun. And I felt like, wow, this isn't so big a deal. I understand it. And in there, as part of the Constitution, it requires by law in the United States that we have to count how many people live in the United States every 10 years. And then that goes toward uh, taxes and allotment of federal funds. But it also goes to determine congress and, and electoral votes and all that so a lot of important things as a result we do it by law every 10 years and we encourage people i encourage people fill out the form if you live in jersey and particularly if you live in ewing where i live fill the form out so they know more people live here and we get more federal dollars please that's what i want i don't want you, then, you hiding from the government so i encourage people be numbered here david numbers people and there's all sorts of trouble as a result of it you know, it's also interesting, in Numbers chapter 1, Moses, who was basically the king of Israel, if you want to think of him that way, he is told by God to number the people. Numbers 1, he numbers them, there's some 600,000 uh, men able to fight. So you add those numbers, you know, maybe 3, 4 million people that are living there. So he's told by God to number them. Numbers chapter 26, Joshua, after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Joshua, before they're about to enter into the land, the promised land, he's told to number the people. And he does. In Exodus chapter 30, when God is speaking to Moses and he's sort of establishing the law of the land, he tells him specifically, when you take a census, here's how you're supposed to do it. So he not only tells him to do it, but he explains how he is supposed to do it. And they do it. And all is great. 
And now David comes along and he wants to number the people and he gets in trouble for it. It doesn't seem to make sense. Now if you look at verse 7, after the fact, so to speak, this is what David says. He says, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. And we already read, Joab had tried to warn him. You look at verse 3, Joab had tried to warn him, but David refused to listen to him. He did it anyway. And now he says, I have sinned greatly. But it still doesn't answer the question, why is it a great sin for David to do it and a command of God for Moses to do it? And I think it's because it comes down to motivation. What was the purpose behind this numbering of the people? So not that it's necessarily wrong to number them, but why was he doing it? We can't necessarily say for certain, but there is a few possibilities that are suggested. Exodus chapter 30, as I said to you, I showed you the verse there, it mentions that when they do the census, that the people are required to bring a half shekel offering each. Some have suggested that the reason why there was such a great judgment on David is because they didn't require the half shekel offering. Maybe. I don't know necessarily. It doesn't seem like there's enough emphasis on the idea of a half shekel offering. Uh, plus, Joab was against the idea before any mention of bringing an offering was, was spoken of. So I don't think it's necessarily that. But some have suggested that. Others have suggested that David wanted to number all of the people, which would include the priest, the tribe of Levi, and that that command was abhorrent to Joab because the priests weren't to be numbered as fighting men. And so David is trying maybe to build up his numbers and so just throw everybody in there. I want to see how many we got kind of thing. And Joab's like, you can't do that. And so something that was his sin, maybe. Others have suggested that David's sin is actually one of unbelief or self-reliance. That what David is trying to do, remember, in the context of what we've been studying, it's battle after battle after battle after battle. And they're just kind of moving around. And what some are kind of putting the pieces together, because it doesn't really say, is that David is trying to make a decision, should I go off and fight this people? Well, before I decide if I'm going to, I'm going to count up our resources, and I'm going to see if we can go into that battle. And if that's the case, then David is no longer trusting that God is going to deliver. He's no longer that little boy that said, who's this guy? He's got a lot of nerve. Give me a stone. And I'll take that giant down and I'll knock him down. Because, why? Because he's great with the stone? No, because he trusted that God would deliver the nation. And that some uncircumcised Philistine that had the nerve to come out and stand opposed to the people of God has to be brought down and God's going to bring him down. And he'll use me. Well, that's very, very different than saying, well, let me make sure I have enough soldiers and let me make sure we have enough uh, artillery and that we can go in and before we go fight this battle, I want to make sure. The sin, you might say, is the sin of unbelief or the sin of self-reliance. And then another possibility that has been suggested is that the reason that this sin is so grievous is that it comes from the place of pride. And that is, you've seen people, and sometimes kids will do this. You know, I remember when I was a kid and we used to get snow. I would, get my, I would love snow because, one, you might not have school, uh, and, two, you could go shovel people's driveways and stuff, and you could make money. And so I'd go door to door, and, and I'd go to all my paper boy. I was the paper boy. I'd go all the, to the people, and I'd say, would you like your driveway shoveled by a nice young man like me, uh, sort of thing. And then you'd collect your money, and you, know, you work 10 hours, and you walk away with like $80, and you're like, man, I'm rich. And you're so excited. And so you go up in your bedroom. You already know you got $80. But you go up there and you lay out the, the ones and the fives and the tens and you count it all out and you, you realize how rich you are. Then you go downstairs, you lock it in you know, your sock drawer. Then you go downstairs, you have dinner, and you come back to your room. What do you do? 
you count it out again, you know, and just make sure, and you just want to count it out to see sort of how much you have. And it's almost like that's what David is doing. He wants to see just how much money I have or just how many people I have. And if that's the case, if that's his motivation, then in David's heart, as he's getting this number coming to him, he's saying things like this to himself, look how big this nation is that I lead. Look how many people I rule over. You know, you look at the numbers and it says that there was, basically there was 1.5 million people, it says. Moses only ruled over 600,000 people. You don't think that came into David's mind? You know, Moses, yeah, he's a great guy. 600,000 people, but could he rule 1.6 million people like I'm doing? I, I wonder if it did. You know, you've heard it said, how much is enough? You guys know the answer. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And then you run around and you chase and you chase and you chase. And David here, we don't know if his sin was pride, if it was unbelief, if it was self-reliance, if it was that he wanted to number the Levites, if it was uh, having to do with not bringing a half shekel. Maybe it was a combination of all of those things. But what we do know is this, is that this was sin. And David would come to realize that as well. But what's interesting is, even if, this sin was prompted by pride or something like that. I suspect most of us in here, certainly I do, but I suspect most of us in here would say, okay, yeah, but still, I don't think it's that serious. So he's got some pride. Now, if I said to you, hey, we need to pray for Billy. Billy just murdered somebody, and he's in a lot of trouble. You'd say, oh, man, Billy murdered somebody. And you'd, you'd really be on your knees praying for Billy. If I just said to you, you know, one of our elders just stole a car. We don't know what's going on in his mind, but he stole this car, Grand Theft Auto. You'd say, that's horrible. What brought him to that place? But if I said to you, hey, you know what? So-and-so is struggling with pride. You would probably say, oh, that's too bad. Anyway, let's move on and let's talk about other things. You wouldn't think it was that big a deal or that serious that they're struggling with pride. Even in our society, what do we tell our kids? Hey, show a little pride in yourself. You know, some days my kids go out to school. Not Jake. Jake's here with us, and he's very clean you know, or whatever. But someday, someday my kids go to school, and I'm like, what are you wearing? You can't wear that and go to school. Show, have a little pride in yourself, or whatever. Or their homework sometimes. You know, like the pages are all wrinkled, and there's parts missing, and, and, and it's a mess. And I'm like, you can't hand that in. Your name is on the top of that page. Have a little pride in your effort that you put forward here. Yeah, even yesterday, my son and I, um, with a, a great group of people, I told my wife, I'd love to spend a week with the people I was with yesterday doing a mission project. We went and we were gutting out some homes that Kevin shared with you. It was just such a great group. And it was sad it was over. You know, we only got to work for eight, ten hours together, and then we all went home. Uh, and my son Luke came with us. Luke's 11. And he came with us, and I just observed him and watched him. And sometimes, you know, young kids kind of get in the way, and you're sort of like, why don't you go sit outside, you know, and count the stars or something, or whatever. <laughs> and other times, so, and, and what I observed with Luke, though, was tremendously helpful. He, just had, he was doing this the whole time, looking for ways to make other people's jobs easier. And on the ride home, I said, you did great today. And I'm, I'm really proud of you and the effort that you did. I was very, very proud. And I told him I'm proud of him. So we tell our kids, take a little pride in your effort, you know, be proud of yourself or whatever. Uh, and I'm proud of you and these sorts of things. So if that's the case, what is so wrong with pride? How could it be such a grievous sin? Well, first off, when we say to a kid, I'm proud of you, or show a little pride in yourself, or whatever, we're, we're using the same word, but we're saying something very, very different 
from a person that is struggling with the sin of pride. When we're talking about having pride in your work or what you produce, we're talking about personal integrity. We're talking about a work ethic. We're speaking of putting our best effort forth and seeking to use all the abilities that God has given us for His glory. That's what we're speaking of in those particular instances. But what we're speaking of here is an excessive belief in our own abilities. That's the pride that we're talking of. It's a, it's a belief that interferes with our recognition of the need of the grace of God in our lives. It's a belief that convinces us, you know, I don't really need God in my life for most things. I believe, personally, I believe, sometimes more than others, that I need God to live and to move and to have my very being. Certainly spiritually. But, and I just believe it in the fact scientifically. But spiritually, I am so dependent on the Lord. And I hope you are as well. We need to be. But when we start saying to ourselves, you know, I can take care of this one, God. I don't really need you for this one. Or I'm good, uh, and so on. Just get me into heaven, and I'll take care of the rest. Well, then what we are beginning to do is stress a belief in ourselves. We're convincing ourselves that we don't need God in our lives. We're the maker of our destiny, right? All things revolve around us. You know, you ask someone, what's the center of the universe? And most people will tell you the earth, right? Or, no, I'm sorry, the sun. I'm just teasing. They'll tell you the sun is the center of the universe. But that's not what most people believe. Most people absolutely, positively believe, you break it all down, that they are the center of the universe. And that everything revolves around them or around me. That's what most of us practically believe, regardless of what we say scientifically. And there's a pride there. Thomas Aquinas, he described pride as this, an inordinate self-love, and he said, the cause of every sin. So that got me thinking about the Scripture and some examples in the Scripture. And as we move through, you look at the very first sin where Satan used pride to entice Adam and Eve. Remember what he said in Genesis chapter 3, 1? He said, hath God really said? Essentially what he is saying there is, what right does God, have to withhold, does God have to withhold anything from you? He has got a lot of nerve. Doesn't he know you're the center of the universe and he wants to withhold something from you? He used pride to entice Adam and Eve. It was pride in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 26 that led the king at the time, a guy by the name of King Uzzah, it led him to actually enter the temple and go to burn incense and, uh, on the altar there. That was the job of the priest. And the priests are like freaking out. What are you doing? Get out of here. You can't be in here. I'm the king. I'll do whatever I want. Notice what it says in 26.16. It says, when Uzzah became strong, he grew proud to his own destruction. It was pride. In Daniel chapter 4, it was pride that lifted up the heart of Nebuchadnezzar to say, isn't this the great Babylon that I have built? It was pride which brought his downfall. In Mark chapter 14, loosely translated it was pride which caused Peter to declare, all these other clowns that are gathering around and call themselves disciples, they're going to fall away from you, but I will never fall. It was pride that caused Peter to say that. In Mark 15, it was pride which caused Pilate to be more concerned with pleasing the crowd and what the crowd thought of him than letting an innocent man go. And he would go on to say that he would wash his hands of the whole thing, you know, if this is the way it's going to be. But wishing to satisfy the crowd, he released for them an insurrectionist named Barabbas. And he scourged and then had Jesus delivered to be crucified. Pride was even at the root of the very first sin of, uh, of existence, if you will. Not Adam and Eve, but Satan. 
We know, some of you may know, I don't know if you do, but Satan is a fallen angel. That, that means he was an angel of God. His, he used to go by the name Lucifer. Now Lucifer now is a name we give sort of our mean dogs or whatever. You know, you got a big old mean dog, call him Lucifer and nobody will bother you. You know, this sort of thing. And so the name is sort of associated with scariness and toughness and devouring or whatever. But Lucifer used to be the name of Satan. It was this great angelic name. I think even the root of it is something with beauty, I believe. And so here is Lucifer. He is this angel of God. And prior to the fall, we read that he served as a heavenly angel, serving the other angels in leading them into worship of God. Scholars have suggested that Lucifer may have been an archangel, sort of on the same plane as Michael, the archangel. We don't necessarily know, but what we do know is he was given a distinct place of honor to lead the people into worship. And that was his act of service. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 28, you can turn there if you want to turn there. I'm going to read it. It's a little bit of a longer passage, so we don't have it for the screen. But in Ezekiel chapter 28, it says this of Lucifer. It says, You were the signet of perfection. You were full of wisdom. You were perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, and so on. It, they were crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub, it says. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways. From the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst. And you sinned. And so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. And you, let's see, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of of your splendor. Isaiah 14 also speaks. This one's up here on the screen. It says, how, fallen you, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star of the dawn, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars. And remember, the stars are the angels. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Notice these words. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the Most High. That's the same lie that Satan said to Adam and Eve when he said, you know, you take this, this fruit, and you will be like the Most High. Satan lifted himself up in pride. Very first sin that we have recorded for us in the Scripture. And it was, the root of it was pride. David's numbering of the people is not necessarily wrong, but his motivation is. And because he sets out to number those people, he is subtly deceived to trust in those numbers and to cease to depend on God. And God has created you and I to be a people that are dependent on him. And when David goes to number these people, he's demonstrating, you know what, I don't need God anymore. Well, as we keep reading, Joab goes, he numbers the people. Seems that he does so half-heartedly. He didn't want to do it in the first place. Notice verse 6 says, he doesn't number Levi. So if, if that was David's command, go number everybody, including the Levites, he said, I'm not doing that, forget it. But he also doesn't get around to, he doesn't number, whatever it may be, uh, the people of Benjamin, because it says that the commandment was abhorrent to him. Now verse 7, which we read, is kind of a transition. It takes us from kind of the intro to the result of that, 
And notice we see it says the transition is, but God was displeased with this thing. And so He struck down Israel. In His displeasure, God struck Israel. And we don't have any record. We just know that it happened because it says it did. But we don't have record of how He struck Israel, what that meant, uh, or what that looked like necessarily. But God brought a response to the sin. And I would suggest to you that the purpose of it was to wake the people up. And specifically to wake up David. Now if you look to 2 Samuel 24, we have it up here, verse 10. Whereas in 1 Chronicles it said God struck Israel. In 2 Samuel it says, but David's heart was struck. And so where God did His work of bringing a conviction upon the people and upon David, David responded by receiving that work. And this is key. Because this is the big difference between David and King Saul. King David and King Saul. King Saul came right before King David, you may recall, and the kingdom was torn from him, the Scripture says. Both men sinned in significant ways. Both men sinned in such a way that the nation felt uh, the repercussions of that very, very heavily. But both men responded very, very differently when God began to prick their consciences. And when God began to bring bring people into their lives to explain to them that what they did was sin. Here we have an example of David receiving the striking, if you will, receiving that conviction, letting it prick his heart, and opening him up here. And so David says in verse 8, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. You know, some of you on your hands, maybe you have calluses that have formed because you work with your hands or whatever it may be, or guitar players, they have them on their fingertips and stuff like that. Just recently, Jay, he hasn't played guitar much lately, he started playing again. Uh, for one of our worship services. And after service, he came out, and the poor guy made him play for like two hours on his first night at one of our prayer meetings. And he came out, and he says, my fingers are killing me because they're soft, and he doesn't have the calluses yet. And he's got to kind of build up those calluses again so that the strings don't dig in and cause such pain. Well, in our lives, if we have hardened hearts, and you have a hardened heart when God convicts you, and you say, "Ah, I don't really want to listen to that. Or when God says, why don't you do this? And you say, I don't really feel like doing that. And you keep saying no to God. What happens is layers of skin kind of grow over the heart, grow over the heart. And then I have calluses on my hands. Sometimes just for fun, I'll take tacks or whatever. And I'll just sort of pins, I'll just sort of shove them in there and scare the children, you know, or whatever it may be. Because they're so hard that even a pin, I don't even feel it. Well, that's fun, you know, to scare the children. But that's very, very sad when that's the condition of your heart. And if your heart is in such a place where it is hardening over to God's conviction, and as He pricks you, if you can't even feel that a pin went in, you will never respond in repentance. And so when you think, ah, no big deal, I'll just do this thing, and I know God's convicted me not to, and you ignore the conviction of God, you do that long enough, and you won't even know the conviction of God anymore. David knows the conviction of God. He feels it. And he responds to it and he says, you're right, I've sinned. I've sinned greatly that I've done this thing. David doesn't look to justify his actions. You can hear people saying stuff like this. Well, yeah, I know it's wrong, but what else was I going to do? You know, justifying his actions. He didn't blame others. If these stupid Philistines would stop attacking us, I wouldn't have to do number-taking, sensei, or whatever it may be. You know, it's their fault. You can hear people saying things like that. He didn't argue with God. Yeah, I don't understand what the big deal is, God. So I wanted the number of the people. So what? Rather, what David does is he confesses. 
Again, look at the rest of verse 8, which essentially David says, I blew it big time. You tried to warn me, and I didn't listen. I'm sorry. Would you take away this sin? Would you take away this iniquity? Now, God responds in in the uh, following verses there. It says, And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer. A seer is a prophet. It says, The Lord spoke to David's seer, Gad, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will. Either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you or three days of the sword of the Lord. Pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And then David said to God, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. Very important that we see this. David was forgiven of his sin, but there were still consequences for his sin. Very important. Sometimes, But I said I was sorry. You know, our kids say that to us. You know, yeah, we'll still go sit in your room, you know, kind of thing. But I said I was sorry. I said I was sorry. There, are, there can be forgiveness, but there are still consequences. I've confessed my sin. Or a person has confessed their sin, but nonetheless, they're still pregnant. A person has confessed their sin, but nonetheless, there's still that prison sentence. A person has confessed their sin, and then they say something like, you know, I didn't mean to say that statement. I'm sorry. And you can say, I forgive you. But the consequences are, I heard that statement. And now my heart is hurt as a result of it. And it may continue to be hurt. And I'm going to have to struggle with it. There are consequences for our action. And so Gad says to him, choose. He says, three years of famine. Can you imagine having to choose your penalty? I wouldn't even want it. Just do whatever you got to do. You know, but he has to choose his penalty here. The first is three years of famine. Now, you might look at that and you're like, oh, we'll be all right. We'll store some stuff up or whatever it may be. Well, three years of famine. You remember back in the book of Genesis when the nation of Israel, ex- the whole world, it seemed, experienced the famine and Joseph had been sent beforehand to Egypt. Uh, God kind of worked circumstances out to have Joseph just in a place where he could provide for the whole world, really. And it was there that the children of Israel from the land of Canaan came and they, they bowed down before Joseph and you know the whole story there. Well, they came to Egypt because Israel, the father, said, look, there is no food in the land. We've gone as long as we possibly can and we're desperate. You guys pack up, go down to Egypt. You know, that's a hundred some miles away. Go down there and see if there's something there. Well, you read the passages over the next bunch of chapters there, what you discover is that's only about a year into the famine. And they're at the place where they are completely desperate. And there's nothing they can do except go down to some foreign nation of Egypt there. This is going to be three times the length of that. So David says, that's not good. I don't want that one. What else you got? And Gad comes back to me and says, well, there's also three months of devastation at the hand of the enemy. Now, personally, I think I might pick that one. 90 days. You know, I could find some caves. I could hide in for 90 days, you know, and we could outlast them, you know, and just kind of cross off the days in the calendar and finally get there. But remember, David is probably thinking, man, I treated some of the surrounding nations pretty poorly. Remember last, I think it was last week, two weeks ago, we studied that one group of people. He hacked them, it seems, with saws and pickaxes or whatever. He probably made some enemies out there. And now they see their opportunity. They're going to probably gather and they're going to uh, offer their paybacks. And so David says, yeah, I don't like that one. What else you got? And he says, well, 
three days of pestilence. Now, a pestilence is a disease, like a plague of sorts, that it, it strikes humanity, human beings, not humanity, but human beings, animals, livestock, that sort of thing, uh, and it kills. And we've had plagues in the history of the world, which came in and wiped out a people, um, or millions and millions of people, segments of the population. I think one of them, they said, is maybe 25% of the population, and stuff like that. So pestilences and so on. But this one is going to be so deadly, as we'll read, that 70,000 people will die within a day. That quickly, it came on. It wasn't a matter of growing sick. It hit them, and it took them. And David, without any hesitation, says, I choose the third one. Look at verse 13. He says, and this is the reason why he chooses it. He says, let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. David reasons, if judgment is going to come, then I want it to come from one who has a track record of being merciful. And so he says, I throw myself at the mercy of God. Look at verse 14. 14. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. Seems like the angel is just making his way from city to city. But as he was about to destroy the city, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. Which is exactly what David suspected God would do. And what should have been a three-day judgment, though it's severe, 70,000 men have died, God stops after just one day. Continuing on, 14 and 15, it says, And the Lord said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough. Stay your hand. Now the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, they fell upon their faces, and David said, Was it not I who gave the command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, these people, what have they done? Please, let your hand, O Lord, my God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let the plague be upon your people. So while this pestilence is breaking out, notice it says that David and the elders, that they've clothed themselves in sackcloth, which is basically, think of like a burlap bag of sorts. They clothe themselves in this sackcloth and they fall down on their faces. Usually, when a person clothes themselves with sackcloth in the scriptures, it says they also will take ashes and kind of like throw them over their body as well. This is a mark of repentance. So these guys are repenting. They're crying out for God's mercy. Uh, and they do so here at this threshing floor. Now this threshing floor, verse 15, belongs to a guy by the name of Ornan. We learn later on, Second Chronicles chapter 3, that this very place happens to be upon a mountain ridge that is called Mount Moriah. So there, up on the top of this mountain, is this large flat stone. And they think they know where it is today. And there's reasons why uh, they do, more so than it, some guy used it as a threshing floor. But it's this large flat area. And there, they would hook the oxen around it, or to be even more simple, they would just simply beat out the grain on this uh, stone. And you know everything starts to separate. And they would basically pick it up, throw it in the air, and the winds would come, the harvest winds would come, and that which was good, heavy, would drop down, that would be the grain, and all of that other kind of fluff stuff would just sort of blow away in the wind. It was the threshing floor. And that threshing floor there on Mount Moriah was located just north of David's palace. So David is here in the city of David. Right up here 
is where Mount Moriah is. And David comes out and he can go and he can see there. Mount Moriah was also the place, a couple chapters earlier, that they, they situated the Ark of the Covenant. And so I think that David makes his way up to the Ark of the Covenant with the elders because they're going to cry out for mercy. God, we need mercy. And where, where do you go to cry out for mercy? Well, a good place to go would be the Ark of the Covenant. Because you remember, the Ark of the Covenant was that rectangular box with the, with the poles that came off the side. And on the top of that box, you have the angels with their wings kind of pointing to each other, almost covering the center of the lid of that box. And the center of the lid of that box is what is called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat's not really a seat, it's a bowl. And the purpose of the mercy seat was the priest would take the blood of the sacrificial animals, they would pour it into that bowl, and the blood would come up over the sides of the bowl, and it would spill out over the edges of the Ark of the Covenant. It's the place for mercy, that God would look upon an animal in the place of my sin. And if that's the place where mercy uh, can be found, and if you want to use it this phrase, where it could be earned, so to speak, by the giving of the life of another, of an animal, then that's the place we have to go. And so David and the elders, they go there. They put on this sackcloth. They put the ashes on their head. They fall down on their face. And they cry out to God for mercy in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And notice David's words. He says, was it not I who gave the command to number the people? I did it. I'm the one who deserves the judgment. Put it out on me, Lord, and let these other people go. David, he's not shifting blame. He's not making excuses. But he's crying out to God to let everyone else go that he alone would experience the judgment. You know, sometimes that makes sense, doesn't it? It's my fault. I did it. I'm the one who's responsible. But sin, doesn't it have an effect on everyone else that is around us as well? You know, so the person who says, well, what's the big deal? It's my life. I'll do whatever you want. Yeah, well, your decision to have that affair, what effect do you think that's going to have on your kids, your family members, your church? Your decision to commit that particular crime, what effect is that going to have on your kids when you're sitting in a prison somewhere and your kids are desperate for you to be home with them? Our sin affects others, whether we wanted to or not, whether we meant it to or not. You know, I think sometimes if, if we had the luxury before we make a decision to go down the path of sin, if God could just say, well, hold on one second, let me show you a video. And let me just kind of spell out everything that's going to come as a result of this decision right now. And we could see all of the pain and all the hurt that it's going to cause other people and it's going to cause ourselves. I think the vast majority of us would never choose to sin again. Sin has the effect of hurting other people, not just ourselves. Now, David's sin here hurts these other guys and he's crying out, God, please, God, please, just let it be on me, not on them. Look at verse 18. God told him to stay the sword, verse 18, says, Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up, that he should raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now it says that Ornan was threshing wheat. And he turned and he saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and he saw David and he went out from the threshing floor and he paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at full price that the plague may be averted from the people. And then Ornan said to David, Take it and let my lord the king do what seems good to him. Look, I'll give the oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing sledges 
will turn those, the wood of those uh, as part of the, the fire for the offering and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all to you, David. But King David responded to Ornan, no, but I will buy it at full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was here in Jerusalem. But the rest of the furniture and the instruments of what would later be called the temple or the tabernacle at this time, that was back in the town of Gibeon. That's where they went to bring the Ark of the Covenant, you may recall. So the rest of those things are there. And the the altars and stuff where the barn offerings would take place aren't here. So David is told to build an altar. And the place that he is told is Ornan's threshing floor. So Ornan's threshing floor, as I described briefly, and I forget how much I described it, was essentially, uh, it's, it's kind of a flat rock in the midst of this ridge that is there. It's roughly 8 feet by 10 feet or so. It's kind of circular in shape or whatever it may be. You, you, can, kinda, you can go see it now, uh, what it roughly looks like. They think uh, the place that it was. Uh, and it's about 100 square feet of rock. It's like a bedroom, if you will, um, that is there. And that's the place that Ornan would go to beat out the grain, to thresh. It's also the place that Jewish tradition tells us, that that flat rock, that that's the exact spot where Abraham brought his son Isaac in Genesis chapter 22 to offer him. We know that he offered him somewhere up on Mount Moriah. And to find a uh, 100 square foot area where it's a flat area some thousand years earlier, that would be a perfect location to lay his son. Genesis 22.2 says, Take your son Isaac, your only son whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I should tell you. So likely, we certainly know it was on the mountain, but likely this threshing floor was the exact place. It's also at this place where David is going to be told to build the temple. So you have all of this symbolism, if you want to take a look at it, that is going on here. That this place where Abraham's going to offer his son, this place where the temple is going to be built. In Genesis 22 also, in verse 7, Isaac is a smart guy. We, sometimes we think, if you know the story, you think that Isaac was like a little boy, or like a baby even, and that you know Abraham brings his son, he's going to offer him because God told him to. He doesn't really understand why. Uh, he had waited 100 years for this baby, and now he has him, and God wants him to offer him there. And, and so he, okay, so God, so he brings this baby, he puts him there. It's not a baby. Isaac talks to his dad. They have a conversation and a reasoned conversation. Some have suspected that Isaac may be as old as 30 years old when this is happening. And together they go up this particular mountain. I love Abraham's faith. People said, where are you headed? He said, the boy and I, we're going to go, we're going to offer, and we will return to you. We, he says. Even though he knows he was told to go and to, to slay him there, to offer him there. Well, anyway, as they're making their way up, Isaac says to him, Dad, he says, uh, yes, son, he says, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said to Isaac, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Now, if you're reading the King James Version, you will notice that it says, God will provide, parenthesis, for, in italics, parenthesis, himself, or something like that. If you're reading some of the more modern translations, like the NIV or the ESV or some of those other things, it'll read, God will provide for himself. It just throws the word for there. And the reason why it does that is because, and the reason why it's in italics in in the uh, King James, is because the King James uses a method of uh, taking the ancient manuscripts, 
trying to translate them from different languages into the English language, and their philosophy, their, their, the modus operandi that they work from is simply word for word. What it says, translate what it says. Don't offer any interpretation. Some of the more newer translations, they try to give you thought for thought. This is what they meant, so we got to change a few of the words here to convey what it was trying to say. So different philosophies of how to come about writing of a scripture uh, or a version of the scripture here. Well, in this instance here, they throw in the word for because it says God will provide himself. And what he means is God's going to provide for himself a lamb. Don't you worry about it, Isaiah, or Isaac, I should say. But I think it's significant that it says God will provide himself a lamb. Because what's interesting is as you read the rest of Genesis chapter 22, you see that there's an animal. The, the passage says that there's a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And it's that ram that is taken and is offered in Isaac's place and that is accepted by God. Now Abraham said God will provide himself a lamb and here is this ram. I find it interesting, which is not a lamb. I find it interesting and you look to the New Testament and there's Jesus walking with his, walking uh, on the, the shores of Galilee there and John the Baptist with his disciples. He says, hey guys, you see that guy over there? He says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of of the world. You see, this lamb that Abraham knew that God would provide himself, God became flesh and dwelt among us. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I think that's what Abraham was foreshadowing. That's what Abraham was thinking of. And especially I think that for a variety of reasons, but I also think that because when Jesus died, Jesus, if you go to Israel, and, and we'll see this, and, and those that are traveling with us, we have about 40 that are going in February. Would you remind me when we get there to show you this? When, when you go to the Temple Mount, now the Temple Mount that you've heard of, you see pictures of the Golden Dome, whatever, of the mosque. Um, when you, that is one big flat area. It's like a big football field. I think you could fit four or five football fields up there. It's a really, really big flat area. Well, it wasn't always flat. It was a mountain ridge. And you know how mountain ridges are. You've got high points and low points and valleys and, and so on. Well, that mountain ridge of Mount Moriah, it was Herod who determined, look, we, we're going to have millions of people gathering here. They can't be standing on the side of a mountain. So he brought in all sorts of stone and everything, and they flattened the whole thing out. They built these retaining walls around it. And you can go, you can see that, and it's great fun. But if you come to the edge of the Temple Mount, and you're on the outside of it, because there's a big wall on the inside, and you're on the outside of that, and you look to your left, you can see a ridge of mountains that just run through outside, basically outside of Jerusalem. Mount Moriah, behind you where the temple was, the mountain continues to run. And if you look, just, and, and you don't even really have to look, you just look. You know, make sense? You know, it's right there. It's not like, wait, I don't see it. You know, it's right there. There's a, a ridge of Mount Moriah that is known as the name of Golgotha. You know it better. We know it better as Calvary. Jesus was killed on a ridge of Mount Moriah. And that foreshadowing of that Old Testament story where God ask Abraham to offer up his son, and then he stops him. He says, stop. Now I know you fear me. God did what Abraham couldn't do. He was going to, but he couldn't do it. God offered up his son on that same ridge. And the sacrifices of the temple that would eventually be, I would suggest to you, on the exact same site as where Abraham was going to offer up Isaac, all of those sacrifices look forward. They all foreshadowed the coming of a great sacrifice, Jesus, our sacrifice and also our great high priest. So much symbolism. It's very, very exciting. Notice it says, 
in verse 1 of chapter 22, And David built there an altar to the Lord, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. That means that God accepted his offering. Look at 27. Go back a verse. Chapter 21, 27. Then the Lord commanded the angel, and he put away his sword back into its sheath. You know what that means? That means that the sacrifice was accepted. And God was through with the judgment. That's New Testament gospel there in so many words. It's really no different from the verse we see at football games, John 3.16, right? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave a sacrifice of His only Son that whoever believes comes to Him and trusts that because of that sacrifice they will be forgiven. The judgment will be stayed that they should not perish, but that they shall have eternal life. Why? Because God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world. You were condemned already, the Scripture says, but He sent His Son into the world in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now, if you've been around the church a little, you've heard people say, are you saved? When did you get saved? They'll say. And you might think, saved from what? I don't know what these people are talking about. Saved from what? I told God I was sorry for my sin. Honestly, that's not good enough. It's not good enough to be sorry. It's not good enough to wish I didn't do that. There has to be a sacrifice to save you from the penalty of that sin. There had to be a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Or that angel would have kept swinging that sword. But David brought an offering there. God looked upon that offering and said, it's enough. And just a little bit down the road, on the other end of the ridge, God brought one final offering. And that's the man, Jesus Christ. He saves us. That's what the, it means from the penalty of our sin. If that's never happened in your life, you need to do it. Don't keep putting it off. It, it's an event. It's a, it's a process in your life, certainly, that brings you there, but it brings you to a point where you finally say, I give up. I give up. None of my good deeds can get me there. I need a Savior. If you'd like to do that today, we'll have people out in the hall. We would gladly pray with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for this incredible picture Lord, that we can, uh, we can see that God did 